evening and welcome aboard. This is the first of what we hope is going to be a regular podcast with Pirate Wire Services. If you don't know us already, we're a small team of independent journalists producing a newsletter and podcast of reporting about Latin America. And if you do know us, then welcome back. I'm Amy and I'm here with Josh. Demas. As anyone will know if they haven't been living under a rock for the past six months, on the 24th of February, following weeks of military buildup at the border, Russia invaded Ukraine. And ever since, it's just felt like the whole world is watching as the war unfolds. And, you know, it feels like the situation of shelling in the streets, buildings being reduced to rubble, and just the horrible, horrible human impact is getting worse every day. And I know my friends and family all over the world are watching this on TV and online and in the papers because like they get that it's important. It's kind of like a duty as good citizens to stay informed and to try and figure out what we can do to help, how we can show solidarity. But at the same time, people are just finding it horrifying. Like people are feeling this sense of anguish, despair, hopelessness and frustration and sometimes anger at the coverage too. So at Pirate Wire, we haven't been covering the war itself because we believe in leaving that to local experts on the ground. But the situation has got us talking about something that's close to our hearts as journalists covering Latin America. And that's how the media portrays violence. Sometimes good quality reporting on conflict, crisis and human rights violations can really set the political agenda, can drive policy, it can make politicians change their mind. I'm thinking here of photos like the one in 2015 of three-year-old Alan Kurdi's body on the beach in Turkey. I'm sure a lot of you guys will remember that photo. He's lying face down in the sand with the waves lapping around him and he drowned when a rubber dinghy smuggling him across the Mediterranean to Greece capsized. And it prompted statements of horror from leaders all over the world and in the UK where I'm from, there had been this really shocking level of anti-refugee sentiment that had just become normalised in the right-wing press. And it prompted a change in the discourse because it reminded people that refugees are human, you know, tiny children like Alan and they're dying and it's a result of like avoidable policy decisions. I'm not going to claim that the EU has changed to have a particularly humane policy towards refugees, but I do think that photo moved the needle. Both of us have reported on these really desperate situations of violence, disasters, poverty sometimes. I know that Josh's work obviously focuses a lot around the armed conflict and kind of the failures and the complexities of the peace process. I've looked a lot at the coup against Evo Morales in 2019 and uh, the human rights crisis that followed when the interim government sent the military in, basically. So I think while we're not war correspondents, we both have an idea of how it feels to have this extremely violent situation on our hands and the feeling both like we need to communicate it, uh, but also that we have to be really careful how we tread to avoid sensationalism, to avoid re-traumatizing or otherwise hurting the sources, and just to make sure that we get the message out in the fairest way possible, right? Yeah, absolutely. So can you tell us about a time where you reported on violence? How did you respond emotionally or do you think it showed through in how you wrote and what you said? The thing about covering violence is that as humans, we have this tendency to 
adapt to whatever situation we find ourselves in. So here in Colombia, and, and this applies very much to some coverage that I did when I lived on the Venezuelan Colombian border, there comes this sense of normalization with violence. So I lived in Norte de Santander in a city called Cucuta. The city itself is relatively safe, but outside of the city is one of the main conflict zones, Norte de Santander, and then in the northern part is Catatumbo. Those are two of the, the most dangerous conflict zones in the country. And I lived about a 10 minute walk from the Colombian Venezuelan border for about a year and a half. And during that time, um, I saw three people shot. I don't know whether they lived or not. I saw multiple gunfights where I don't know, know if anyone was shot or not. I saw bombings. I interviewed people that had experienced extreme sexual violence in the Trochas. And over time, this just became sort of my daily routine. I would wake up, I'd, I'd walk down to the border, and there was all kinds of conflict as local gangs fought over the smuggling routes. There was conflict between Colombia and Venezuela, both politically and sometimes physically, and they would fight through proxies sometimes. And I had this, I didn't realize it at the time, but the coverage had all become so normalized to me. Like someone would tell me these horrific stories, and I would just be like, mm, okay, okay, and, and write the notes down, send them to my editors. Usually the editors weren't very interested. <laughs> uh, after a year and a half living there, I went back to New York, where I lived for about 15 years. And I had met this girl, and I was on second second date. And she was just asking me kind of general questions about what I do. And I, I mentioned that I had saw this 15-year-old kid, maybe 14, get shot on the Simon Bolivar Bridge. And she was like, well, what happened to him? And I was like... Oh, I don't know. Like, I tried to send the story, but my editors didn't care. Like, that kind of regional violence is so common in Colombia that it's kind of a dog bites man story. And she's like, yeah, but what happened to the kid? And I was like, I, and it was strange because I didn't realize how much I had desensitized myself. But I started to think about it. I was like, what did happen to the kid? How has this never occurred to me in a year to wonder if that kid who has a mother, maybe he had a girlfriend, certainly had friends, siblings, family, if he's even alive anymore. And that idea just impacted me so much that I started to weep in public at this bar. And I realized that I had sublimated all of this, this negativity and trauma and it was just a survival mechanism that all humans have, right? We have to normalize this horror. But I think it's really important as both journalists and consumers of news that we don't normalize violence. It is horrific and we need to remember that and we damage ourselves psychically, physiologically, and psychologically when we allow that to happen to ourselves. So since then, any coverage I've been doing has been with that in mind, trying to maintain that humanity while still covering the darker aspects of the world. Yeah, that, that sounds really difficult. And what you said about sort of being, being moved to tears, thinking about how you had been feeling about the situation that you were covering, I've never seen that happen directly, but you know, I've been in situations where I, for instance, there were two massacres after Evo was forced out of power in Bolivia, right? And 10 or 11 people were killed in each place, depending on which numbers you look at. And like speaking to the survivors and witnesses, in some cases, they were literally teenage girls who were still at school and just seeing this existential fear, this trauma, listening to them talking about how people had like bled out in their arms. Yeah, wow. Like when I got 
when I got back to Argentina, where I live, like it affected my emotional state a lot as well. Like I felt disturbed. I felt haunted. Like the conversations were going around in my head. And yeah, I think it is really important to constantly be thinking about that and to be sort of sharing and discussing this impact with other people who cover similar stuff and just with people who care and not to let it all build up inside. Definitely. Yeah, I think a lot about the case of this photojournalist named Kevin Carter, a South African journalist that was originally a sports photographer and then started to cover the issues of apartheid and violence between white and black communities, later went to Sudan and was covering famine there. And there's this really famous picture he took of this young girl who's just skeletal, obviously like on the verge of death from starvation. And there's a vulture just waiting a few meters away for her to die. And he took a picture of it. And he said he scared the vulture off and then he just left. That, that photo would go on to win a Pulitzer and one of the highest prizes we can get as journalists, but he killed himself. But I think it's an example of how if you're living in those environments, how violence can become so normalized that you can just absolutely lose your sense of humanity. And I think it's really important to avoid that. How do we report on this violence responsibly, bearing in mind that it's important to visualize the truth, but also not to sensationalize it? Yeah, I think that's a really, really thorny topic there can be a degree of subjectivity in there but i mean i think a lot of it has to do with how we treat our sources so we really need to make sure that the people that we're speaking to they know who we are they know what we're planning to do essentially that there's careful informed consent surrounding the interviews that we're doing ideally we should be empowering them to tell their own stories and they should they should feel like they're being given an opportunity to communicate with the world about what happened to them as a part of a broader search for justice and accountability right we often are going to need to make sure that we protect their identities if necessary uh, we're going to need to make sure that we don't just say oh hey i'm a journalist but that they understand the full consequences of speaking to the press, of potentially agreeing to be named, what it means to go on the record. Like you really need to give people as long as it takes. Check in with them as you're speaking, um, make it clear that if there's something that's too painful, they don't have to speak about it. The interviewee themselves is safe and that we're doing everything we can to make sure that they're not at risk from right. speaking to us. Yeah, those, those last two points are, are particularly important to me. If you can establish a bit of trust with someone and make them feel comfortable and make them feel safe and not make them you know, relive their trauma intentionally for dramatic reasons, I think you're going to end up with a story that, that is more truthful and also more nuanced. And that is something that journalism desperately needs. It has not happened to me, but I know people here in Colombia that part of their coverage has gotten people hurt or their lives threatened uh, because they either didn't protect their sources enough or because they presented the story in a somewhat irresponsible manner. And I don't want to waste the entire podcast, but I really want to stress the importance of protecting sources. Like when you're covering these areas where, where regional violence or endemic crime are a problem, you can get people killed with your journalism. It can, it has happened in the world. And I do not want to ever be responsible for that. And I, I, I want that to be avoided at all costs. But I have had a couple of people that were upset that their story didn't get the attention they hoped it would. 
Um, I've also very unfortunately had a couple of stories spiked after I did the interview with someone and they kind of felt betrayed. It's like, look, I, I, I let you into my heart and I relived this horrific experience and you're not gonna do anything with it. And I'm like, I know, it's, it's horrible. Sometimes it's beyond our power to change these situations. Yeah, yeah. I've had similar things happen to me as well, where stories that I thought were so shocking that they would sell immediately, I think is really important to make sure as part of the conversation about going on the record that people know the scope of what we're doing, that they know we're not going to change the world, that this is not going to win an Oscar or a Pulitzer. We care about it. We really want accountability for what's going on and that's why we're here, but we don't control 100% of the process. Right. And then a final point I'd like to make just, I wanna, I wanna, you've already raised the point, but I wanna clarify, like I'm, I'm not a war correspondent. I've never been in a situation where snipers were shooting at me, where artillery could land on my head. But I have re reported rather extensively from, from conflict zones, um, more low intensity conflicts, let's say. And I, I, I do think that there is, there's a really hard line to walk there sometimes. I think that it's important that people see these unpleasant realities like in Ukraine. I think it's, and I just read this really fabulous piece by Reuters that was about reporting from inside a hospital. Uh, for, I think that it was like two weeks of reporting and it's horrific, but the story itself is beautifully well done. And I think it's important the world understands what conflict is. Conflict is horrible. I've also though had some discussions with some colleagues here in Columbia and they're like, you know, you're beat. You make it seem like Columbia is a really violent place and it's not. And I'm like, well, that's an interesting point. The cities in Colombia are really safe. They're, they're safer than you know, about half of US cities. There's urban crime, of course. But there's also this tendency in the media here, I think in foreign press, especially in recent years, to be like, oh, look, Colombia signed the peace accord. It's an economic miracle. It's recovering. Go there for tourism. And that's not the truth. The truth is that the rural areas here are still incredibly violent places, especially in the areas where there's no state. So it's kind of a fine line. How do we not create or further a stereotype about Colombia or Latin America more broadly, but still responsibly cover these issues? Or, you know, in the issue of Ukraine, how can journalists produce more quality contents like that Reuters piece from the hospital, but not just flood their Twitter feed with pictures of dead bodies? Yeah, I think that brings us on to the next thing that we wanted to talk about, which is like, I think we both acknowledge that we journalists don't always get it right. I've seen coverage that really makes me go, oh, so like that raises the question of what should we not do when we're writing about violence? What is sensationalism and why is it bad? And how can we make sure we're avoiding those behaviors? This is obviously a huge topic. So we reached out to Dawn, who's a journalist and editor that we've both written for to get her take. My name is Dawn Marie Paley. I'm a freelance journalist based in Mexico and I've been covering the drug war here for over 10 years. For me, I feel like the most problematic coverage of violence is the coverage that blames victims of violence for having received that violence. So suggesting that people who were killed in a massacre are people who were disappeared were involved in criminal activity and therefore deserved that violence that they face. This is very, very common here in Mexico. And when you look a little bit deeper, what these journalists tend to be doing is repeating official discourse, right? So the Fiscalia or the Procuraduría is making statements 
with zero investigation, connecting victims of crime to criminal activity as a way to kind of signal to the general public that the people who are being killed are bad people. And it's very obvious why this is problematic, right? Um, it's problematic because it, it kind of removes the possibility of empathy towards victims or, or it makes being empathetic towards victims and, and reacting to the death of these folks more difficult, right? Because we're told over and over again that they, they were involved in criminal activity and that the violence is between criminals. So I think for me, that's definitely one of the most problematic kinds of coverage of violence. How can we avoid doing that? I mean, going beyond official discourse, not trusting the state and not trusting the police and the army who are often the perpetrators of violence to tell us exactly what took place. Take their side of the story, but then go and try to talk to eyewitnesses or family members of the victim or victims' organizations and get the other side of the story, get more context for the story, help understand the victim who may have been, the victim who had violence exercised against them. How, how did they fit and interact? What role did they play in their community? And what is that person not being here anymore change about communal life? And what do we know about the perpetrators? I also think it's really important to avoid dehumanizing language. So describing refugees or migrants as a flood or as a swarm or using racist tropes like hordes. In the case of sexual violence, it's really important to avoid victim blaming language as well, which feeds into regressive stereotypes about how the dynamics of sexual violence work. It's important to make sure that we're clear on our boundaries. So like, it's not ethical to pay for interviews. Is this a fair portrayal of what the person told me? Or is it being distorted because of the story that the editors higher up want to tell? Because I think that's pretty common. I don't know what thoughts you have on that. Sometimes one of the hardest parts about covering any kind of conflict, whether that's war or riots, even when election-related coverage, is that we're often operating in this environment that's been flooded with disinformation. And some of that's intentional, some of it's not. So sometimes when we're facing deadlines or when we're on our Twitter just or social media accounts just trying to explain to readers what might be happening from our perspective, there are mistakes that get made, and that happens. And I think it's really important for media companies to acknowledge those mistakes and issue corrections. And in fact, that's one of the ways you can tell a media uh, company that's interested in its reputation versus one that is just spreading propaganda. Some people, for example, got mad at Reuters coverage in Ukraine over the last couple of weeks and because they issued a retraction um, quoting some Russian official. Turned out that it was, it was not a true story. But the difference between Reuters, which immediately issued the correction, deleted the story and issued an apology, the difference between them and perhaps like a state-sponsored media like RT is they just flood disinformation. So if you're reading a media source that has never issued a correction, that's a bad sign. You should... <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. And what do you what do you think counts as sensationalism? What's the kind of coverage that makes you go? Ugh? For example, during the strikes here last year in Colombia, which were a huge huge deal and really violent. People argue over the amount, the official government account is that 62 people died during these protests, the majority at the hands of police. 
And there were some, some journalists down here that were, all they would do is, so they would write for kind of right-wing papers that were supporting the government stance. And, and I would meet some of them because I spent three months in the streets at the protests. Every day they'd go down and they would just try to find pictures of a protester throwing a rock or a protester breaking a window. And that was their coverage. So three months of just look at these violent terrorist extremists, right? And any, anytime you're going into such a complex social situation, if you already know what your headline is before you get there, you're probably not really doing journalism. So that's one example of sensationalism. We see it in crime a lot here in Colombia as well. So the media will often give people who are who are, are charged with the crime by the police these scary nicknames like Joel the Terrorizer Collins or something. <laughs> And, and they'll be like, this horrible guy, he, he brutally murdered all these people. And they'll describe it in graphic details. They'll release photos of the victims. And, and to me, it's like, what is what are you trying to accomplish there? That just seems like you're trying to vilify this person before they've had a court date and sell these dead bodies for money. And to me, that's not journalism either. Yeah. And just to finish, I think I think the most important thing to remember is that feeling personally upset by this kind of reporting, whether as journalists or as consumers of news, like when it makes us cry, when it haunts us all day, that isn't always a bad thing. I often feel that when I'm doing the reporting, and I think it serves to remind us that we're still able to empathize with people we don't know necessarily. And it, it reminds us of why we care and it reminds us of why our humanity and our shared humanity is important in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. It is important to confront these realities. That is a big part of what I view our job as journalists. And sometimes that process is painful. Sometimes it's painful for us. Sometimes it's painful for people who consume that media. But sometimes that's the only way to affect change. At least that's the goal, even if it's not always the result. Yeah. And unfortunately, the war in Ukraine doesn't look set to end anytime soon. And I think it's also really, really important not to forget that there are a lot of other conflicts that are still going on at the moment. There's the conflict in Syria, in Yemen, in Ethiopia, and plenty of others that we could mention. And what we're saying now, unfortunately, is relevant far beyond Ukraine. But we hope that by at least talking about these things, we can help people who care about this conflict and ourselves to work through some of those feelings and like try and just maintain a sense of emotional balance you know so we can offer the solidarity and the support that is sorely needed at the moment thanks for tuning in i hope you guys have found this discussion interesting if you have any thoughts feel free to get in touch on social media we're on twitter at pirate underscore wire and if you haven't already make sure you subscribe on substack that's piratewireservices.substack.com catch you next time